Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. That Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello and welcome back to Mid-Atlantic. As you've probably heard me say before, uh, Mid-Atlantic is part of the Agora Podcast Network, a network of great independently produced podcasts from all over the world. Uh, each month we nominate a show to specifically to promote, and this month is Dominic Perry's excellent The History of Egypt podcast. Um, why don't you go over to the Agora Podcast Network or to iTunes or Stitcher or a podcatcher of your choice today to give it a listen. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. Today I'm joined by journo and map geek John Elledge in London and I'm also joined by Democratic Party operative Reggie Hubbard in Washington DC. Say hello gentlemen. Hello. Hello all. On a day that seen Swedish prosecutors drop Julian Assange's rape investigation, we ask, is Donald Trump the most persecuted politician in world history? Donald Trump spent most of Wednesday completely avoiding Twitter uh, after the Comey memo news broke on Tuesday evening, but he showed an uncharacteristic restraint on Wednesday. All that went out the door though Thursday morning when he took to Twitter. Thursday morning, Donald Trump gets on Twitter and says this is the single greatest witch hunt in uh, politics in American history. But the story gets a little deeper than just Donald Trump's uh, ridiculous Twitter. Yesterday, during a speech, uh, I believe it was to the Coast Guard Academy, Donald Trump said that never in the history of the United States has any president faced as much criticism as Donald Trump has. Seems like you being in Washington, D.C., you're ideally placed to answer this. Over to you, Uh Reggie Hubbard. Um... The president's use of hyperbole is is ridiculous in that most persecuted in history. I mean, let's talk about the obstructionist Congress uh, that Barack Obama inherited, um, or maybe even something some things that happened to George W. Bush. 
any persecution that this gentleman fe- realizes is of his own doing. Uh, I honestly have no sympathy for it and look forward to the increasing investigations that are happening in a bipartisan fashion. Could we not argue, John, that there's been a coarsening of American politics for the last 20, 30 years and in effect Trump is the most persecuted but he's also the logical outcome of that coarsening of American politics. I mean, is he the most persecuted? Well, I think you've got to remember that I mean, Trump is, what, the 44th man to be president? He's uh, the 45th president, but that's only because they can't grow the Cleveland twice. Um, but of those 44 men, 11 of them got shot and died in office. So I think, you know, at the very least, you have to take into account the fact that nobody has so far shot Donald Trump. Then there were those like you know, Ronald Reagan got shot and didn't die. Um, there's also, you know, the pe- politicians get persecuted all the bloody time. It's kind of if you don't want people throwing rocks at you, you really should not be going into politics because there are plenty of ways of making money uh, and, and having a modicum of power over the world where you don't have to be a public figure and you don't have to deal with the fact that a significant number of people are not going to like you. Just man the hell up. <laughs> um, sorry, I got I got a bit distracted there. I mean, yeah, but yeah, of course he's. I think he is obviously a product of. Uh, the the Fox Newsification of of American politics, and but that's also what's going to sustain him. I think it's kind of difficult to see what level of scandal would be required for it to not only uh, be talked about within the Beltway or you know among uh, people who never liked him in the first place, but what kind of scandal would be big enough to make it through to the people who voted for him and do still like him. Because until those guys turn against him and therefore, you know, start threatening to not vote for their Republican congressmen in the midterms, I can't really imagine what mechanism there is to actually do anything about this. Yeah, I I unfortunately agree with you. I mean, the only thing that I would say is that if and when Republicans view his downfall as a net positive, that's when the tune will change. If you look at what happened to Nixon in 74, he didn't get pushed out until it was only when Congress turned against him that he was forced to resign. And that was right. three months before the 1974 midterms, right? So, Right. Like, I mean, it, it, it could be something very similar because I was talking about this with a friend the other day, uh, actually a journalist friend, and she wanted to be devil's advocate. I was like, listen, even if Trump gets impeached, um, there's no way that Pence can say he had nothing to do with Donald Trump. So anyone running in the midterms next year is going to have the stench of being affiliated with Donald Trump, provided that Democrats come up with a, with a cogent message. Um, so when they view him as a liability uh, towards their election, I mean, because he's already a liability, when they view him as a liability to their electoral success, then he's out of there. But we do have now the special consul appointed to look into the Trump-Russia um allegations surely this is going to be yet another kind of drip drip which actually could undermine uh, the presidency no there aren't going to be any leaks but then we have potential leaks coming from comey don't we so you could easily foresee a scenario uh, whereby this doesn't even get to the midterms could we not reggie we don't know the size the scope and the scale of the uh, of the investigation uh so this thing could i mean the uh Investigations toward uh, Bill Clinton's behavior lasted for years, um, and 
apparently the scope and the um, intricacy of Russian involvement in the election is larger than anything related to Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. So this could this could last for quite some time. But but what about Comey? I think it's somewhat significant that this week the memo got leaked whereby he very clearly said that Trump had asked him to drop uh, investigations into Flynn. Surely what we're going to see from a man who has been, at least on the face of it, wronged, was asked to take a loyalty test. But we know that he's scrupulous in in terms of taking notes, John. Um, Surely there has to be more revelations to come in a timely manner. I mean, I do get the impression with Comey that he is a man who is kind of playing his hand very, very carefully. And I suspect if he doesn't get the result he wants from this, there will be more revelations to come. It's almost as if you don't want to make the the former director of the FBI an enemy. I'm in danger of repeating myself here, but I can't see what the mechanism is to actually force Trump to do something that he doesn't want to do i mean like i may, maybe reggie can fill me in on this but like how significant would it have to be before the force of law alone is enough to compel him to to actually get out of that office without congress having to take action with this guy and the way that the government is structured here it, it, it will take an act of congress uh or an electoral rebuke uh to get him out of office uh i don't see the humility or the self-awareness or the political acumen in maybe taking a short-term loss for a long-term gain i I don't see i don't see that so this is my concern is that i just can't work out like could we plausibly get to a position where there is concrete evidence that the president of the united states colluded with russia and yet he still gets to stay in the Oval Office because there is no way of getting him out of there and the Republican Party is just entirely shameless. The way they are now, yes. Again, but, but I go back to what, what, what I've said before, that if there is bedrock evidence uh, that implicates this gentleman uh, through a special independent prosecutor and elector, um, Republican elected officials still do nothing, um, they will have electoral consequences to pay. So they can either take congressional action and remove the president or do nothing and then they lose their jobs surely there is there's still more backroom maneuvering um there was a revelation or let's say um the leaked taped of the uh congressional majority leader joking uh last summer that trump was in in the pay of russia and to nervous laughter from various kind of congressmen but surely though reggie that kind of the key linchpin in all of this at least one of them in terms of continued confidence in this presidency actually is the vice president mike pence who's been invisible literally all this week hasn't he he's hardly come out batting for his president if he's in the public the way that the media is focused on this stuff he cannot avoid a question of being directly he can't avoid being directly confronted by these issues so it's probably best for him politically to stay off the radar, especially with the president going overseas, uh, to try and potentially change what the conversation is, at least short term. Um, but, you know, I, I also have to think at some to some extent, uh, Mike, Mike Pence is playing the longer game. Like uh, he's he well, is that, that's directly what I'm alluding at, to. Yeah. Yeah. He's directly out of central casting uh for what you would so if hollywood were to do a movie with the archetypal president before barack obama 
it would look like Mike Pence. Very true, very true. John, you're the journalist here. How exactly do leaks work? Yes, there is somebody in the White House, and this is the leakiest administration in history. Um, but is it a case of there are unknown, uh, unnamed sources who uh, are deliberately pushing things to, let's say, the Washington Post or the New York, uh, New York Times? And, and if so, how exactly does the leaky make contact with a publication? How exactly does this whole mechanism work, John? I mean, it, it varies, but and, and you, I, I should also say I am not a journalist who is in a position where I am regularly leaked inside information on what is going on in the sources of power. But it's 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 because these things all work on personal relationships. It will be like they they know each other from they know each other from drinks parties, they know each other from from the dinner party circuit or whatever. Or like occasionally someone will just reach out to a, a journalist they don't know, but more often than not, it will be they'll reach out to someone they already trust, and there'll just be a dialogue uh, happening, possibly via something like WhatsApp, which is encrypted, or maybe just via via personal email accounts or something or, or whatever. But it will just literally be a case of someone inside the administration reaching out to a journalist and saying, "Hey, this is what's going on," because you know j- journalists and government officials talk to each other all the time that's kind of how this works like journalists want information and government officials want to know what everyone else is saying and they want to be able to put their spin on stuff so so that those communications will already be happening it's just a matter of someone deciding to use them for for uh for something a bit bigger than asking about the latest opinion polling you know mm. Um, Reggie, let, let's end up with you in, in this week because it, it's literally like you, you don't know where to start with the amount of allegations and the amount of news. And one week in Washington feels like um, three months in, in the real world. But looking forward, the Democrats have a couple of special elections of which they can get their teeth into in Montana and in Georgia. Um, tell, tell us how the party would be gearing up to those and specifically with the various allegations in and around Washington. What state is a Democratic uh, ground vote in at the moment? Uh, so I heard this morning from people in Montana, um, Bernie Sanders is headed to Montana this weekend. And uh, they are ready to make sure the people that show up to these events turn out and vote. Uh, what, what tends to happen in uh, special elections uh, they have even lower turnout than uh, midterm elections, uh, which is midterm elections usually around high 20s, low 30 uh, percent. Congressional special elections usually are low, low 20s, high teens. So it's important um, that everyone that is in, inclined to vote do, do come out and vote. Um, in Georgia, the gentleman missed the threshold of a runoff by like 1.4 percent. Uh, if he had gotten over 50%, then he would not have had a runoff. Uh, so I know that in Georgia, but especially in Montana, people are more focused on turnout than anything. I know the DCCC, the Democratic uh, Coordinated Campaign Committee, Congressional Campaign Committee, is putting tens of thousands of dollars in turnout and uh, advertising for the Montana race. Uh, and I'm sure the same will happen for Georgia because if Democrats are successful in these very red areas, uh, then that just leads to a stronger narrative of uh, a resistance party on the rise. And on that note, uh, let's cross over the Atlantic and let's look at the UK election of 2017. 
This election, her chance to give her vision for Britain and shape this country's society and economy for years. And Theresa May says she wants to build a great meritocracy. It means making Britain a country that works not for the privileged few, but for everyone. A country where it doesn't matter where you were born, who your parents are, whether you went to, where you went to school, what your accent sounds like, what God you worship, whether you're a man or a woman, gay or straight, or black or white. But she argues that dream can only happen if Britain negotiates a good withdrawal deal from the European Union. If we fail, the consequences for Britain and for the economic security of ordinary working people will be dire. If we succeed, the opportunities ahead of us are great. And her manifesto repeats her promise to take Britain out of the European single market and customs union and to reduce immigration. While one of its most notable domestic policies is a plan to make wealthier elderly voters pay for more of their own care. Theresa May is fighting this campaign very much as her own brand. In her speech, she barely mentioned her Conservative Party. So with the UK in uh, election fever, so to speak, Theresa May has redefined conservatism as somewhat of a move away from Thatcher. How significant has this been, John? I think election fever is a good phrase because all I want to do is lie down under a blanket and shudder at the moment. Um, It's... I don't know. There's a weird thing going on with Theresa May where there is a certain amount of Thatcher cosplay, as it were. Like, I think a lot of... She's incredibly popular. Like, I can't can't see it myself. I can't bear her. but, But if you look at the polling she is incredibly popular not only among tories but among swing voters and they think part of that is kind of the cultural memory of margaret thatcher she's she's a tough looking middle-aged woman in a blue suit um giving a lot of uncompromising messages and they think people feel like very shaken by a lot of the events of the last few years and they do like the idea of a strong hand on the tiller and someone who knows what they're about? So, so they're projecting a lot of uh, a lot of the kind of furniture of Thatcherism onto 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 May's administration. Um, but yeah, you're right in terms of what she's actually suggesting. She is tearing up an enormous amount of the Thatcher legacy. So Thatcherism uh, was all about privatisation, uh, state not interfering in the economy, uh, basically letting large chunks of the country die if they couldn't adapt. And, and it was Thatcher who first took us into the European single market. In fact, that was one of her, her biggest achievements. May is kind of undermining all of that. So we're coming out of the single market. That's, that's going to be fun. Uh, we are also going to have an industrial strategy in which the government is very carefully directing investment away from London to certain regions, like probably the Midlands. Uh, you're going to see more government attention. So lucky you, Royfield, uh, because basically because that's an area outside London that the Tories can actually win. So we're probably going to see various things move up to Birmingham. Uh, it's, you know, it's it, it's not a Thatcherite free market approach to to economics at all. They're very much looking at picking winners again. And yet everyone's kind of mistaken her for, for this kind of Thatcher mark too. It's it's really contradictory set of policies, I think. Mm. Um, Reggie, as I say, we, we think this has been somewhat really significant that our party on the right, who nominally has the name Conservative, um, in, in lots of ways is not being conservative at the moment. 
Um, when are we going to see a similar kind of jolt with diehard Republicans? If we take Trump completely out of this, in terms of him being somewhat of a slightly maverick figure, but your diehard Republican congressman, they are a direct descendant in terms, ideologically anyway, from Reagan, aren't they? When are we going to see a similar right-wing US politician who can actually say, no, we can embrace some elements, actually, of, of left thought? I think that uh, there is a, and this is one of my fears politically, um, because Donald Trump is such an anomaly, because he has been so destructive, because he has been so disruptive to what conservatives view as writ and what liberals view as aspiration, um, there is a space for a sensible Republican to rise up and make an argument that you're wrong on the right, you're wrong on the left, here we are in the middle. Um, that does exist. I don't, the, the opportunity for that does exist. I don't necessarily know who that is yet. Um, and I think before that happens, there needs to be a little bit more bloodletting with the Tea Party. Uh, it seems as though there are elements of the Tea Party that are ripe for self-destruction. Um, if that comes to fruition, I think there's a perfect opportunity for a middle-of-the-road Republican to... Where, where will that self-description actually happen, though, Reggie? Is it going to be uh, with, with all these town halls and the amount of visceral anger against the healthcare acts? Or are we looking at donors, you know, withdrawing money from Republican, Republican primary races to Tea Party candidates? I think it's a little bit of both, actually, right? So... Um, the two ways to get a politician scared are to take away their votes or take away their money. And so you're seeing an opportunity for both. And I mean, that that's true for, for Democratic politicians as well, not just Republicans. But there's such visceral anger for people they thought would be for their votes against what they've done with respect to health care um, that that will manifest itself in some, some way electorally. Um, because people, if you, if you, if you pick up and go to a meeting and voice your displeasure and what you are hoping happens doesn't happen, then you're more than likely to not only vote, but convince other people to vote your way. Um, and with respect to the donors, um, that, that's an opportunity too, but I think that the, uh, the opportunity exists more with respect to uh, voters as, as opposed to donors because um, Recently, uh, one of the Republican congressmen from Salt Lake City, who was one of the bastions of the Tea Party, Rep Representative Chaffetz, he stepped down uh, because he just doesn't have that much of a chance, it seems, in his, in his reelect. I suspect you'll see more of that um, as this unfolds. Um, but like, like to your question, the opportunity exists. I just think it's a little ways off. And I, for my politics, I hope it's a longer ways off because I definitely don't want to see that. So what UKIP have done, John, is quite successfully be, um, yes, a political party, but more of a, you know, a pressure in the British political system whereby all they had was one issue, get out of Europe. And without really any MPs, only one in the last general election, uh, with only a handful of councillors throughout the UK, they've managed to change the face of UK politics. Are we looking at the Lib Dems similarly going down um, the same route, i.e. they're a one-issue party, it's all about Brexit and how to soften it. And if they are trying to represent the 48%, as Farron seems to be saying, why aren't they having more success in the polls? I 
don't quite believe in the idea that the Lib Dems are going to be a successful pressure because they, at the moment the world is going in the exact opposite direction from where they want it to. We're going to have a very hard Brexit, go out the single market, the country is becoming more illiberal rather than more liberal, both economically and socially speaking. And, and you know, the local election results were abysmal for them. There's no way around it. Like, we were talking about this in the office. That we, I think it was widely expected that there would be not a recovery to kind of where the Lib Dems were in, in sort of 2010, but, but probably an increase in, in their vote share because there's a lot of people who are angry about Brexit and who are also angry about the Labour Party's recent failings uh, and the Lib Dems are really the only home for those voters. But when push comes to shove, they got nowhere in those local elections. Like in, in a lot of the mayoral contests I was looking at, they were on like 6 or 7%, which is abysmal. But John, uh, John, but, so... but, but here's the thing though, right? UKIP did much worse, but managed to change over time the whole tenor of British politics. So it's not necessarily about raw election results because if you looked at UKIPs spectacularly unsuccessful in terms of bums on MP seats so to speak but it was getting I mean the 2014 European elections in the 2015 general election uh, and the 2016 locals too I think it was getting like 18 19 20 percent it was the third party and okay that didn't translate to vast numbers of elected politicians but it was enough to force the Conservatives as the governing party to take action, to take account of the fact that it was bleeding votes to these guys. The Lib Dems are not going to be able to do that on 6%, which is where they currently are. And, you know, I thought maybe they would recover a bit in this election. Um, but at the moment that I was at one point plucking numbers out of the air and wondering if they get to 40 or 50 seats again, they've got nine at the moment. But I think if they get to 14 or 15, that will be an incredibly good result for them from where they stand now. And I think part of the, the difficulty is that there isn't a 48%. You know, I, I, I desperately want Britain not to leave the European Union. I think it's, a, I think it's a, a massively stupid decision that's going to be hurting us for decades. But I've had to accept that I am not alone in that. But there are fewer of us than 48% of the population. There's maybe 15 to 20% of the population that are still really angry about Brexit. M most of the people who voted Remain probably don't feel that strongly about it and think, well, we lost, but I've lost elections before. Move on. I don't care that much. So, so there is no 48% to appeal to in that sense. Nonetheless, I think there probably is a, a larger share of the population than the Lib Dems are currently getting that, that feel that way but they're not managing to get those to vote for them i think partly that's the vagaries of an electoral system in which people know they can't win in a lot of seats partly also it's because that that percentage whatever it is uh, some of them will be partisans for existing parties you know and part of it is just that tim farron the liberal democrat leader is there's no way around it he's just crap he's rubbish he has no charisma the one thing anyone knows about him outside the Westminster bubble is that he's an evangelical Christian with a history of he's not voted for homophobic legislation, but he's been mysteriously absent from those votes. So he's not, you know, he, he, he would often be absent for votes on things like uh, you know, equal marriage and so on. And that fits very badly with the sort of stance that the party wants to take right now, where it's trying to appeal to young metropolitan pro-European liberals, basically.
and it just doesn't it doesn't all fit together so i i think they're extremely unlikely to make any significant progress in in next month's election and if they get to 15 seats that's going to look like a good result for them i'm i'm not as optimistic about their future as as you seem to be no no listen i i'm not optimistic at all i'm i'm purely just trying to work out if politics was pure physics and ukip represented the desire of approximately 50% whether it was a nascent desire, a subconscious desire, or a, you know, a conscious desire, whatever, of fifty percent of Brits to get out of Europe, there is a desire, however hard or soft that is, for the other half, approximately half of the UK population to remain in Europe. So it makes sense, uh, in terms of the pure physics of it, for one party to hitch its banner to that cause you know i mean i i i i agree i think it's sensible i don't buy into this argument at all that i've heard from some people on the leave side who are like well we voted uh, therefore i don't see why the liberal democrats should adopt a pro-remain position because you know the people have spoken it's like well, yeah but a lot of people think the people were wrong the number of people who think it's the wrong decision is very possibly going to increase after we leave the single market and it starts having an impact economically. Um, so there's actually quite a good parallel with like either Charles Kennedy, who was Liberal Democrat leader during the Iraq war, mm-hmm. is, is now kind of fated for having called that one correctly. But at the time, he was very much out on a limb. Like people, the, the war, people forget this now, but the war actually had popular support when it happened um and a lot of the papers really had a go at kennedy for being anti-war um and in retrospect he was very clearly right and and those newspapers very clearly wrong i think it is plausible that the same could happen with the lib dems over brexit and that you know eventually people will forget how enthusiastic they were for brexit when it becomes a if it becomes clear it was a bad idea i think a lot of people will switch sides without realizing they've switched sides if that makes sense um so I think it's entirely legitimate for a party to be staking out the ground and saying we are the party of Remain. It's just not clear that's going to translate into any electoral success next month. I, I wish that wasn't true. I thought we would probably see a Lib Dem recovery, but it just looks from the local election results that that's not happening. Reggie, Theresa May has been up and down the length and breadth of Britain with her new Tory manifesto. Um how do you think she's doing? What's been uh, clear to me is it's been interesting. The most interesting thing has been watching her develop more of a mandate for strengthening power under her vision, under her conservative vision, when in fact the Brexit vote was 52-48. Um, it seems as though, as you guys alluded to earlier, um, that it's gone from 48% not being against the vote to around 15 to 20 um, in a relatively short time. Um, and to have that statistical advantage go to your conservative advantage has been quite striking for you. John, John did say that, and John is going to have much more of a better idea of the the statistics and the polling than me. But I think his answer should have at least been a little bit more nuanced than maybe than, than what you said. I think what what really is not that the pro remain vote. If you were to, if the poll was again today, would go down to twenty percent. It's just that those who are specifically agitated and angry about it is about twenty percent, of which there's another 
28%, let's say, who are, you know, shrug their shoulders and go, oh, well, decisions being made type of thing. Right. Uh, there is a, a, a an enthusiasm gap, which is kind of quite, quite marked. But yeah, I, and, 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 and that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that the, the exploitation of that enthusiasm gap to political advantage, I think, is quite striking. All right, John, let, let's just end up with you before we go on to our takeaways of the week. If you had to sum up uh, this week in uh, you know, British politics, how exactly would you do that? You know, all the major parties now have their manifestos out there. Uh, we're on the home stretch uh, before the election. Sum it up for us in one uh, tabloid byline for us. We're all going to die. <laughs> it's just it's really depressing i mean like everyone knows the result even the the, the people active in the labor party are, are largely not thinking about this election a lot of the energy is going into the leadership election that's probably going to follow it because you know nobody thinks the labor is going to win up to and including the labor leadership so it really is just a question of of quite how big the conservative majority is uh, but we'll know in three weeks, so it's difficult to sort of feel any. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You know, hope. In an uncertain world, there is always music which can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday 15, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great tunes and allocate 15 minutes to both. I mean, I was eight years old, interesting, the same age as the uh, Dragon King's daughter when she comes out of the sea. But um, well, what was happening to me when I was eight years old was that I was at the hands of a paedophile in, um, in a classroom for a year. And... Awesome. Yeah. Um, for me, I... Well, and I think the reason that I somehow managed to, to win in the end is that for me it's about an economy of the three things that bring a song together
catch up with me speaking to friends and interesting people every Friday afternoon on Friday 15, which you can get, of course, from a podcatcher of your choice. Hello, I'm Lucy, and this is Walkie Talkie. I walk my dog, Basil, uh, pretty much every day in a foresty bit of London. Um, I have been doing so for about four years and I meet people that, as a dog walker, you talk to people. Um, If your dogs get on, you tend to just, you say, which way are you going? Can I come with you? And you just sort of amble along and you can end up having the most extraordinary conversations. Partly because uh, you are walking side by side and facing front, so there's no embarrassing eye contact. If things get a bit heavy, if someone starts talking about something that they find emotional or difficult, then you can always divert your attention onto the dogs and relieve the tension a little bit. We've seen, as a group of dog walkers, we've seen um, people get pregnant, have children. We've seen people whose dogs have become ill and died and the owner says, oh, I can never have another one and then in a couple of months time they appear with a puppy and everyone's delighted to see them and um, we've seen people's marriages break down, new romances start it's a lovely way to start your morning it never fails to give me something something nice to think about, something interesting to think about even if it's not nice and having a dog is a sort of a, a universality really, the people aren't all like me as I hope you'll realise over the course of the series. Leading up to the 1860 election, in walks a gentleman by the name of Abraham Lincoln, who is the Republican candidate. The Republicans to the South represent the ending of slavery. And Lincoln, despite the fact that his sentiment was always in the beginning to preserve the Union rather than to abolish slavery, becomes the lightning rod of anti-Southern sentiment. And he ends up winning the election in 1860 with no support from the South. The Guardian, Manchester, Tuesday, November 20th, 1860. Summary of news, foreign. The details respecting the presidential election furnished by the New York journalist, not complete, but they not only assure us of Mr. Lincoln's election, but show that the Republican Party has obtained far more than the requisite number of votes for his return. It is calculated that New York, Pennsylvania, the New England states, New Jersey, and the Northwestern states give him 171 electoral votes, or 19 more than the majority required for the election, the total number of electoral votes being 303. It is not improbable, too, that this majority may be further swelled by the result of the elections in the Pacific states of Oregon and California. We have no account of the manner in which the Southerners have received the intelligence of Mr. Lincoln's election.
the next advices will no doubt be filled with fierce southern declamations and protest, but it's not very likely that any southern states will do anything mere than talk loudly about succession. Listen to the first show exclusively on Mixcloud today and subscribe to us on iTunes from Washington to Obama, 10 American Presidents, the new podcast from Royfield Brown. Let's move on quickly to our takeaways of the week. Mr. Hubbard over in the DC metro area, I kind of feel that we haven't heard too much from you uh, this week. So I'm expecting you to shine when you tell us what your takeaway of the last seven days has been, sir. I have, to, I have two takeaways, actually. Uh, one is that uh, as someone who lived in continental Europe and uh, was excited and exhilarated to see uh, the, uh, the French Republic uh, show us what socialism can do, at least in the electoral sense. Um, I will say, liberté, fraternité, and galaxy. Um, but my other takeaway is keep your friends close and your enemies closer. I think that, as we're seeing now, in the first 120 days of his administration, the president has offended the CIA, the FBI, and most other law enforcement groups and certain factions of the Congress. That can't continue to happen without recompense. And we'll see what happens in the long term. But in the short term, um, I think the rapidity with which he's angered so many people will come home to roost at some point. Mr. John Elledge, how about your takeaway? Uh, well, I'm going to avoid politics entirely. Well, not entirely, but, you know, it, it, I'm not going to talk about something that's this. Uh, electoral put it that way um i've been very much enjoying the first season of american crime story on uh, the people versus oj simpson which is an amazing <laughs> it's uh, which is a, a brilliant piece of drama um and it looks at it from from all different angles but I, I, in in many ways my favorite thing about it is is repeatedly hearing uh david schwimmer as robert kardashian have to refer to the juice uh, with a straight face and tell his kids that you know you love your uncle juice that kind of thing and you know, oh, you know and okay. fair play Schwimmer is brilliant in like keeping a straight face during that I don't know how many takes that would have taken but uh, but yeah it's, it's a great piece of television and really worth watching and it has loads to say about um, you know just the American legal system and race relations and you know this the OJ Simpson trial happened when I was a kid and I didn't really see them understand the implications of it so it's kind of quite interesting to to see it put in context like that and it's a great piece of drama so you know go watch that there are no racial issues in the united states <laughs> that's how i'm told so yeah actually this is something i have i've realized over the last few years is um that every every western country is racist in its own unique way so i think yeah. that's 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 something we can all enjoy really <laughs> iceland how's how's iceland racist in its own way I, I don't know enough about Icelandic <laughs> politics, but I would be amazed if they don't have racism in Iceland. They probably hate the Norwegians or something. I don't know. Um, but, you know, it's, it's probably going to be I mean like the, you, you can't You can't yeah, read exactly. across from the racial politics of one country to another. Because while I think it's probably a mistake to claim that any Western country has got this right, um, I do think that it's all so dependent on particular histories so that obviously so much of race relations in britain comes out of imperialism whereas in the united states it comes out of slavery you know it's a very right. different it's a diff different history you know mm. yeah so just like reggie you've had two takeaways then yeah i guess i have there we go 
Well, folks, I've only got one this week, and I've kind of fallen, I've never fallen out of love with this, but I've fallen definitely in love again with um, Lover's Rock, and Lover's Rock was a form of reggae music which came out of South London in the very late 70s, early 80s, and it's kind of classically a Lover's Rock song. Um, is very melodic, has a female vocal, not always, but classically has a female vocal, very high, almost kind of falsetto. And for me, it was the nicest music kind of growing up. And when I was growing up, when I was about 10, 11, 12, I always wanted to go to blues parties. And blues parties were these house parties whereby everyone would move all their furniture out. It almost would be like a nightclub. You'd probably pay about two pound in on the door. And literally, uh, there'd be like one light bulb and it would be blue and it kind of set, set the tone. And you'd always have these guys uh, rubbing up, so to speak, in a very kind of slow, gyratory way with these women with their, with their backs up against the wall to this music. And as a 10-year-old, I always says, when I grow up, that's the type of parties I was going to go to. <laughs> By the time I was a teenager, 15, 16, blues parties had died out and Lover's Rock had kind of moved off the stage, so to speak. But whenever I hear um, Janet Kay's Silly Games or a song from that era, it just completely and utterly takes me back to being 8, 9, 10, 11 and wanting to go to blues parties. And, I, and it's the one, it's one of these British, uniquely British forms of music. You know, it comes from the island of Jamaica, but it's uniquely British in terms of the harmonies and the melodies. And it never really got its due uh, kind of creatively. Uh, in the wider music industry so that's my takeaway of the uh, of the week is that lovers rock still is uh, the sweetest and most purest form of reggae well folks we, we managed to soldier through that um this has been me roy field brown in in a sunny birmingham funnily enough with john ellidge in london and with reggie hubbard in the washington dc area Folks, we are going to try and, and get these out every two to three weeks. Uh, please bear with us. It's hard for us to get everybody's schedules uh, to work work together with the respective time differences. But you can catch us on Twitter, uh, where we are at Mid Atlantic Show. Um, how can people catch up with you on social media, John? I'm at John Elledge, which is a uh, which is J O L-E-D-G-E on Twitter. I'm also on Facebook as John Elledge Writes. So there you go. Uh, and you in the DC metro area, Reggie? Reginald Hubbard on Facebook and O Reggie Global um, on Twitter and Instagram. Fantastic. And on social media, you can catch up with me where I'm at Roy Fields, but R O I F I E L D, if you want some misspelt grammatically poor tweets. There Those you are go. the best ones. <laughs> also, we are on uh, Facebook where you can type in Mid Atlantic Show. We, of course, we do have a website which is midatlanticshow.com. We will endeavour to be with you again um, in the next three to four weeks. Take care. Bye bye.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 